you only get let in on the secret after you have your own kid. And everyone just goes, yeah, get used to being tired. That's the next 18 years of your life. See, I don't think it's going to be that hard. <laughs> oh, you dumb sweet prince. Joe, you haven't had a puppy, right? <laughs> a woman gave... I was walking my dog uh, through the park the other day. Um, and this... She must have been about pushing 60. And she's got a little um, a terrier puppy. Why do the... About the same age as as, as Loki. But seriously, why she, do, why do goes, women of a certain age suddenly go for the terrier? I don't know, because they think they don't... It's low maintenance. They don't have to walk it a crazy amount. They want a bit of a lap dog. Mm, okay. Um, anyway, so our dogs meet. And she she's like, it's really hard, isn't it? She was like, my kids were less work than he is. Sorry, and I was like, that's great to know, because I haven't got children yet. <laughs> Were the kids less work, or are you now just so tired? <laughs> yeah, you're not the, uh, <laughs> the sprite young thing you were. Did you have your kids in your 20s? Were mm-hmm. you full of energy and joy for life, and now... It was the 80s. You're on your slapping. third husband, <laughs> and you just... You don't care anymore. This this dog is just a bauble to pass the time. That's to all give you it is, isn't it? Some structure in your That's day. That's such a good point. She's forgot the pain. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric. A podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history. Focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story... Go on. This story begins... (laughs) This story begins in the Georgian era. And the three words that we use colonial yeah education now don't tell me the last one and we'll say it at the same time turmeric representation close it's really close you were colonial education, education representation representation, representation. Okay. okay the coastal region of gujarat in western india has been the site of advanced civilizations since at least 3900 bce babylon No. Uh, When the Bronze Age Indus Valley Civilization called it home. Being a coastal region, it was well known to Europeans as far back as ancient Greek times, with the inhabitants being famed for their skills in commerce and banking. Really? So, yeah, even back 2000 years BCE, this area of northwest India were known for their skills as traders. Is Silk Road part of this? Mm, don't think so. That was through to the Middle East. Was it? I mean, it could have gone all the way through to India. Not sure. I guess what I should have said is, mm. <laughs> rather than Silk try Road to Silk Road part of this, Joe? Mm. <laughs> Might be. Um, however, despite the fact that they'd had a civilization... I love it when you play along. Spanning back for, at this point, we're talking 4,000 years, give or take... In the 17th century, the big European powers, they weren't interested in trade. They were engaged in a race to claim as much global territory as they could. We're talking England. We're talking Germany. We're talking France. Spain might be part of that. Italy, not really. No, but there's one you've missed. Because the Portuguese were the first to identify India as a potential target. And the first place they reached was the Gujarat and particularly the port city of Dew. The Portuguese ships decimated the naval forces of the Sultan, 
of Gujarat and established control of the Indian Ocean. Is everything you know before doing your research when you hear Sultan and you're just thinking Aladdin? Yeah. Like everyone, I'm picturing the fat guy in the white with the big hat. But happy. there was more than one Sultan. There were Sultans all over the place. There was just like a um, the proxy for saying king. Right. Yeah. The Portuguese, though, be first to them. Portuguese were a lot more chill in terms of the way that they um, invaded places. And they were happy just to have control of the shipping routes. Just that trade. Uh, and aside from a few ports, they didn't seek to extend their influence too far into the country. They were like, well... You're bringing all the good shit to the coast to trade it, and we now control the coastal ports. Seems a win-win for us. We don't have to extend our forces and start to pay the expenses of running an empire there, and we're still getting preferential trade agreements, and we still control the trade routes. Brilliant. Portuguese thinking smart. You know they're, they're working smart. They're not working hard. Um, they didn't cause too much trouble for the people of Gujarat and actually the two cultures appear to have genuine respect for each other developing a symbiotic relationship as described by a French explorer with the very French name Francois Pirard de Laval Your French is great I practice that one name quite a lot and I'm not going to do a French accent for the quote because that would be incredibly racist the way I do it so he said <laughs> imagine it in a French accent I have never seen a man... Uh, I have never seen men... I've never seen a man. <laughs> I've never seen a man. <laughs> Mon Dieu! I've never seen a man. I, I can't do accents, by the way. I was <laughs> Scottish. <laughs> I have never seen a man. Yes. Just do a random accent. I have never seen a man. No, it isn't even man. Um, <laughs> okay, so... Francois Pirard de Laval, he said... I have never seen men of wit so fine and polished as are those Indians. They have nothing barbarous or savage about them, as we are apt to suppose. They are unwilling, indeed, to adopt the manners and customs of the Portuguese, yet do they regularly learn their manufacturers and workmanship, being all very curious and desirous of learning. In fact, the Portuguese take and learn more from them than they do from the Portuguese. So... The two cultures gelling well. Portuguese are learning some tricks from the Gujarat people. Gujarat people are learning some tricks from the Portuguese people. It's a win-win. Everyone's having a lovely time. It's the birth of a new culture. Yeah, it's a party on the western ports of um, India at this particular moment. But... The English are coming. (laughs) Well, you... We want it all. (laughs) We want it now. I was going to say spoilers, but that's pretty much, yeah... In any situation where you see two cultures meshing well and developing a sort of mutually beneficial relationship, <laughs> at some point there will be British flags flying yeah. coming over. Uh, yeah, so... Do you all like boiled potatoes? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? You're going to love them. <laughs> what, what are you doing? Don't mind me, just putting these flags up. What, why? Because we own it now. What? That's my grandmother's house. No, nope. but I was sitting there. So while the Portuguese... That's the, that's the English attitude. You're sitting in a chair as any other nation, any other um, nationality. And the, the English just sit upon you <laughs> as though you were the chair. Excuse that's, me. That's, that's a, a weirdly brilliant metaphor yeah. for what the British did. I quite like that. Yeah. 
It was cabbagey farts. <laughs> I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't notice you. Are you okay? Oh, you died. <laughs> so, while the Portuguese... Will your children work for me? (laughs) The answer is yes. It was rhetorical. (laughs) While the Portuguese were happy to see the Gujarat people as equals, there was another colonial power who had established a base on the Gujarat coast at Surat in 1614, who saw things a bit differently. When a disagreement broke out over the succession of the Maratha Empire in the 1770s, the British decided to support the uncle of the infant Peshwa, or the infant ruler, uh, as a pretext to have a war to try and steal some territory, because of course we would. So if you, in, in order to explain it in a way that you will understand... Why, because I'm an idiot? No, because I think this will help. So oh. if you think of the... Peshwa. Mar- the Mar- Is Mar- that anything to do with Peshwari? Possibly, but I don't know enough to confirm or deny. Well, Peshwari means coconut-filled... Does it, or is it that the people from a region liked to do, to do it that way? Ooh. Anyway, if you think of the Maratha Empire as Pride Rock and the sort of the lands of the savannah, mm. what Britain essentially did was they looked at the situation and rather than supporting Simba, the small Peshwa, they decided that they would support Uncle Scar. And a kuna matata to everybody else. <laughs> Pretty much. So that's where you're at. So the British came in and went, no, no, him. The guy cackling maniacally in the corner while holding his gold. That's the guy we're going for. Now, the first Anglo-Maratha war, it resulted in a defeat for the British. Oh, shit. I know. Uh, but They're not going to let that stop. Yeah. Them. What what the British did was... Underestimate. Wait, they waited 20 years and then they used the exact same ploy to have a second Anglo-Maratha war. So they, the uncle didn't do it, and they supported him and it didn't work out. So they waited until the uncle's son came of age and then had the exact same war of succession. And this time, the British had a star player in the newly minted Major General Arthur Wellesley, who you will probably know better as the Duke of Wellington, although he hadn't become the Duke of Wellington at that point. Well, we'll uh, call him Wellesley. Then. Yeah, so... At this point, he's just a guy who has a dream to develop a boot. It's a high boot. Yeah, God willing, he will he it, will gain the status that he is able to push it onto a fashion-conscious British upper class. Wellesley employed a hyper-aggressive strategy. He would attack much larger forces when conventional military wisdom was to wait for reinforcements. So prior to the decisive Battle of Versailles, he refused to wait for the second half of his army an entire half of his army who he'd sent off um, to arrive in case it gave the Maratha forces time to retreat. The future Duke of Wellington had two horses shot out from under him during the battle because he was in the thick of it, but he just shrugged it off, mounted a third horse, and I'm guessing they didn't have like lots of spare horses, so when I say he mounted a third horse, some poor lieutenant or you know sort of lower-ranking officer had to climb off the horse. Yeah. So, so that he could climb on and he continued leading from the front the Maratha forces finally fled the battle after taking more than 6,000 casualties and Arthur Wellesley would later describe this battle as the best one he had ever fought and that was including Waterloo no. he, he made that statement after he'd won the Battle of Waterloo so he considered this it's, it's a bit like when you know you ask a, a recording artist what their favourite album was and they purposefully don't pick the one that was you know like a, a 
a success commercially and they picked the the weird sort of prog rock inspired one that they did that was commercially panned because for them that was that was the true so in terms of disney because that's the only way i can understand anything <laughs> what film would you say so it's not a lion king it's more of a i don't know because disney historically has not given the the english a good shake you know <laughs> we're either you know delightfully befuddled See, twits mine, or mine's the enemy i love sword in the stone mm. I would find it very difficult to... Okay, so it would be the equivalent of if King Arthur, when he was asked what his most um, successful, his most important, which which battle he regarded as the best one he'd ever fought in his life, he talked about the magical battle he witnessed with Mad Madam Mim oh. rather than anything he did... With all the knights. With all the knights of the round table. And everyone went, hmm... Not sure I remember that one. It's like, well, not a lot of people knew of me then. You know, it's really just a few hardcore fans. There's like this one rambunctious squirrel that was into me, and that was about it. It was metamorphosizing. Yeah, you know. Merlin was there, though. Yeah, Merlin was there. We've gone off on a tangent. Would you like to return from the tangent? Do you want me to draw you back in? So, at the conclusion of the Second Maratha War in 1805, Britain had taken control of the Gujarat and began imposing civilization and British values on the local population, who, let's face it, had already been pretty damn civilised and pretty damn good at what they did. But the British insisted their presence was necessary to ensure peace and prosperity for the people living in the region. Mm. Eight years after the British took control in 1812, Gujarat was ravaged by a pulmonary plague that had killed half of the population by 1821. Half. Of the entire population. And the British are really upset about this, aren't they? Go Britain! See, this is the thing we're doing the British history. Mm. It's shameful, isn't it? A lot of it. Yes. But do you relate to it? Do you take that as your heritage? Yeah. You do? Because do you feel like... It is. I mean, the thing is, we're now at a stage where finally getting to the point where we're able to accept the colonialism was part of our past and that actually the way that we are as a country now is informed by some of the horrific things we did. Yeah. And so long as we make sure we're not making the same mistakes again, it's a valid point. I don't think I'm now, with the information I've got and the way that I was brought up, likely to condone this kind of thing or likely to think it was a great and glorious thing that we did. But it's important to know about. Like, us still remaining quite a powerful country for the size of our we're waning in the same way that italy had an empire and then they waned and the no Greeks but i mean really... like we're, st- we're we're still reaping the benefits of that mm. time aren't we oh hell yeah um for, for how little we are and how little power we should actually have yeah but we're we're doing our best to give most of that power and influence away so it's okay don't worry we'll soon be in the position we should be in <laughs> that we've been in for most of history which is that place over there, what can't be governed, and let's yeah, just I like try to and... believe them Scottish. They, they they were even less governable than we were, bless them. Even the Romans got to Hadrian's Wall and just went, "We're going to build a wall. Yeah. <laughs> we want to keep them out." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've we fought many different peoples to build this empire, but those guys, they scare me. Yeah, yeah. That is the limit. <laughs> empire ends here, and we're done. 
So it's believed the death toll in the Gujarat was so high because the formerly prosperous region had been in the midst of a famine at the time the plague first hit. And the famine may have had something to do with the British taking resources and wealth out of the area, transferring it back to Britain, where it could be used to pay dividends to the shareholders in the East India Company. Always back to the East India Company. Yeah, all of the mineral wealth, all of the things that, you know, were making sure that the economy in that region worked, we were just siphoning all of that back to Britain in the, in the guise of, well, we're helping you because we're trading with you, but we're doing it in a way that's immensely favourable to us yeah. and shit to you. And, oh, oh, things have started to go, oh, oh dear. Why, why did you guys do that to yourselves? But regardless of the cause, um, because the poorest people were killed at a higher rate than those who were relatively wealthy, there was a shortage of farm labourers. This led to a continuation of the famine, which led to more plague deaths, in a fun cycle that lasted the better part of a decade. They also managed to squeeze in a third Anglo-Maratha war, because, you know, when when half the population are dying of a plague and you have an endemic famine, why wouldn't you throw a war in there as well? Yeah. That's only going to improve matters. Uh, It was into the aftermath of this first 20 years of British rule that Dadabai Naroji was born. Is this the story of Dadabai? This may be the story of Dadabai. Oh, God. As the son of a Parsi priest, it would have been very likely that young Dadabai would have followed his father into the priesthood because it was a thing that was passed down the male line. To the firstborn. Yeah, you could get married uh, and have kids as a priest, but you were expected... You better keep it secret. You were expected to keep the priesthood in the family. So his dad had been a priest, his grandfather had been a priest, his great-grandfather had been a priest. However, luckily, his dad died when he was four years old. And Dadabai and his, you know, he's basically freed from that now. Because he said, said Dadabai. Yeah, he said Dadabai at four. four, four and, you know, he's then in this great situation where he's left with his single mother who has no money. So they're going to be destitute rather than him going into the priesthood. But it's okay because they were supported by his kindly uncle financially. So they were able to continue living in the same house. and Not falling for it. No, it's, it, this, the uncle is good in this situation. You always set me up like this and it's something horrific. No, no, no. Even more luckily, the money that the uncle was providing came with a stipulation. Ooh. And that stipulation was that Dadabai was enrolled at the free school that had recently been set up by the Native Education Society, which is an unfortunate kind of colonial name, but it was providing free education to people from the Gujarat, so that's good. Now, Dadabai, he was naturally gifted and was popular at school. And he was given the nickname De Jongolo. De Jongolo. Yeah. Which translates as the Englishman because of his impeccable manners and his relatively fair complexion. So he he looked more English than the other kids in his class. Right. Which was, it'll come back to help us later. It's a, it's a special talent not to looking quite so foreign that may come back to help him later. Uh, There was a brief break in his school career so that he could get married. Mm. His bride, Gulbai, was only seven. Although, to be fair, Dadabai was 11 at the time. Still. Yeah. So when he was 11, so when he was in, what would that be, year six, um, he he got married, got hitched. Year two? Year two, year three. Let's, let's not make it weird. Let's say year three. Um, the extra responsibility of being a husband appeared to agree with him, though, uh, and he was accepted on a scholarship to continue his studies at the Elphinstone Institution, 
which is a very well-to-do college. Mm. Mm. He was offered a chance to go to England to study mathematics, but his Parsi community forbade it. So that the local community, they heard that he had been offered a scholarship to go to England and they went, no. Is that because he's so clearly gifted? They don't want to lose that. You know, like a brain drain. Oh, yeah. Um, well, what they were worried about was they were worried that the English were eroding their culture. So it was a bit like that, but they yeah. were worried that anyone that showed talent and could possibly lead their communities and provide a voice to their communities, the English were taking over to Oh, England. so it is exactly Yeah, that. they were anglicising them and then so that they wouldn't be a threat to the status yeah, quo, so yeah. You just keep farmers and labourers. Yeah. Uh, but Dadabai, he didn't complain at the lost opportunity. Dadabai stay. <laughs> yeah, Dadabai stay. And he instead continued to work as hard as he could. And in 1850, he was rewarded by being made Professor of Mathematics and Natural Philosophy at the Elphinstone Institute. He was the first Indian to receive a professorship and it was a source of great pride for his community and for him personally because he would later say it was the greatest achievement of his life. And as we get into his life, you'll see that that's, that's quite a claim for this guy to be making of okay. becoming a professor. With his position of influence as a professor, Dadabai immediately decided he needed to use it for good and for social change and he set about championing the education of his fellow indians as a means of ensuring they'll begin to take a greater role in governing the country because although the british had passed a law in 1833 which said your race should not be a bar to taking government jobs in the empire or in this case in india most of the appointments to those positions were made in london right. meaning you had to be in london yeah, yeah. Uh, in order to to be considered for the position, no Zoom and, calls. Yeah, so all of these it people takes four months for a letter. Coming, well, no, all of these people coming from like the public schools would just walk into the embassies and say, "Oh, you need an administrator." Hello. Oh, brilliant! We'll have you. You're here. <laughs> we did put out an advert, and we told them there's two weeks to reply, and no one's replied. So you get the job. Yeah, so actually, although it wasn't illegal to hire Indian people to, you know, help to govern their own country... It wasn't going to happen. Yeah, no one had actually been hired in 20 years. Yeah. Firstly, Dadabai founded a literary and scientific society to disseminate the latest theories and breakthroughs to try and just increase the general sort of understanding, the general uh, level of education amongst just everyone that he could convince to join... Um, and then he used the members of the society who did join to help him in his second big idea, which was to provide free education to the girls in the local community. So all of the people who were joining his society and were sort of sharing... How old is he at this point? He's in his 20s at this point. And his, his, Late his 20s and his wife's about because he's got professorship. 12. Yeah, she's, she's probably... She's just left her teens. Right. He's in his late 20s. Um, so... When I say they were providing education to the, the local girls in the community, they didn't have a space to do it. They didn't have any formal sort of funding for this. It was literally a group of people who got together over their love of knowledge, who were finding back rooms of people's houses. They were finding just open spaces of ground and they were encouraging the local girls to come down and they were providing the teaching free of charge just out of a sense of community service and trying to just make sure that everybody had access to this information that they'd been... Just trying to level everybody yeah. up. 
yeah, basically, we've we've been fortunate enough that we were selected to go to these schools. Now let's try and spread that as far as we can through this community. See, and, if I was the British, I'd start shitting myself. Well, well, no, I wouldn't shit myself. I'd see that as an uprising. Well, uh, yeah, baby stages and go right. We'll crush that well, the, before it germinates. We're heading into the 1850s, and you know the 1850s are famous for a bit of an uprising in India. Um, but Dadabai, he's big on community service. He's liking what he's seeing. He's got all of these like-minded people uh, reading through all the latest scientific breakthroughs, reading all the journals, bringing all the information back, and everyone's sharing it, and they're teaching the local community. But he decided he needed a platform, a bigger platform, to circulate his ideas for social reform, uh, specifically for improvements for the Parsi community that he, he lived in. So he got together with a friend. Is called... the caste system in place at this point? Yes. Is that always always been in place? Um, well, I'm sure it in started India, at yes. some point. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's still in place. Right, right. Um, so he got together with a friend called Nazawanj Kama. That's it. Because I kept calling him Nazawang and that's not fair. It's Nazawanj Kama. Uh, and produced a newspaper called The Truth Teller. He was practically, at the start, the only writer. Um, I can't even say it. Nazawanj Kala. Yeah, Kama. Kama. Nazawanj Kama. Nazawanj Kama. So Nazawanj Kama, C-A-M-A, Kama. So Nazawanj was the, he was the the money. Oh, he's the second name Kama. Yeah, he was the, he was the money for this. Um, and he, he provided the resources. And because he was starting it from scratch, uh, Dadabai, basically, he was the editor. He sourced all the stories. He wrote all the stories. He, he did everything else. Um, but the paper would eventually become one of the major news providers for the second half of the 19th century in northwest India. So he, he established it and it became a really sort of influential newspaper. Now, it seemed almost inevitable that Dadabai would get involved in politics. And in 1853, he was given the chance to speak regarding if the charter for the East India Company should be renewed. So um, Queen Victoria had given the East India Company permission to do all of this stuff and it was a rolling charter so every now and then they would have to reapply to the crown say can we continue to basically be Britain's presence in the colonies and to administer everything Um, Dadabai he put forward the view that Britain and India could benefit each other but only if Indians were treated as equal partners and were allowed to begin taking some role in governing their own affairs so he was very moderate in his view he wasn't saying we need complete independence right now we we need you you brits out of here he was saying actually it it could be a really good relationship it could really benefit both parties we just need to make it more equal so it's, it's quite a reasonable point of view i guess in the response isn't going to be as um mm. well it was considered revolutionary uh Dadabai did have a plan for how it could be enacted and his idea was the Indians needed to be a visible presence in England. He believed that if educated Indians made direct appeals to the government and were seen in positions of power in England, um, they could highlight the flaws in the current system in India and be taken seriously. Because his worry was, at the moment, India was, for most Brits, in as a faraway place full of savages. And of course we needed to be there, because all the reports that were coming back were these people wouldn't survive without us right you know we're making all of these improvements for them so 
anything that you're hearing about them saying they want to rule themselves is them just grumbling when really they've never had it better. So database knowing that's what the British people think. Yeah. He's guessing that. So he's thinking, right, if we send educated Indians to Britain as the face of... Reform. Reform, yeah. And then it's much harder for... If you if you go and they hear... The notions... That, yeah. A yeah, native Gujarat man yeah. standing in front of you eloquently describing the issues that are there and talking about reasonable things that could be done is much more difficult to then just dismiss it as um, uppity savages who are just, you know, don't understand how good they've got it. So, yeah. He's... I feel like it's going to be just as easy to dismiss. Mm. <laughs> well, he he had to make this happen. So, yeah, he did what... I mean, to be honest, what any self-respecting Englishman would have done at the time, and he became a businessman. And in 1855, he joined the first Indian firm to operate from Liverpool, Camus. And they were... Uh, Dada a, fly to Britain. Dada sail to oh, Britain, obviously. Um, he, so I believe they were a cotton trading. So they were selling raw cotton or raw materials of some kind. Uh, he resigned on ethical grounds following the 1857 Sepoy Mutiny, um, which was a big uprising in India, uh, and set up his own cotton firm instead, one which was making a tidy profit because he was, he was good at everything he turned his mind to and he's quite good at business. But he used the money to promote Indian interests and causes. So he wasn't sort of amassing personal wealth he was using sending quite a bit back to his community and he was also using it to to further the interests of indians in england which was what he said he was going to do one of the first things he did he went back to his first love of academia and he became professor of gujarati at the university college london so he became a professor in a in a an english university Amazing. Uh, he founded the london indian society in 1865 and then when the ethnolo ethnolo Ethnological. 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 Ethnological Society of London, thank you, tried to prove... Prove. Thank you. (laughs) They tried to prove that Asians were inferior to Europeans the following year. He responded by founding the more politically motivated East India Association to argue against them. And he put a a dog poo bag (laughs) on fire. Could an educated man do this? (laughs) (laughs) Run away! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, so, you know this is what he was going against because the ethnological society was considered quite a a rigorous you know scientific body yeah the fact you know they they considered themselves to be um, following the facts and they were going out and trying to prove scientifically that the reason that british people should be in various countries subjugating the people was because they were superior to those people we're not long out of the woods, are we? <laughs> we're really not. I mean, this is we're talking turn of the century, uh, last century. After he'd set up all of these societies and he'd started funding more educated Indian people to come over and start careers. So he was always happy whenever he was in England. He was always happy for any person who was trying to come across from India to make a life for themselves. He'd provide them with board, lodgings, advice, He'd introduce them to people that could help, depending on what they wanted to do. He was always willing to put in a good word for people. He returned to India for a little while to work in local government positions, but he was becoming more and more frustrated with the lack of the ability to influence any English governors and and administrators. How they allowed him... I'm trying to think there's some nefarious reason that they've allowed him to set up these 
institutions. Well, I don't think it's... Is I, it like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll allow him to do that and keep him over there in a box where we, we know what he's doing, but he's not going to have any influence on the actual internal workings of the government? Well, at this point, what he's doing as an academic ground. is he's setting, he's setting up these societies and it's mainly Indian people talking to Indian people about what they could do. It's very insular still at this point. You know, they're putting out pamphlets and they're starting to sort of communicate, but... It's it's not seen as a threat at right, this so point. So he hasn't he hasn't raised his head above the parapet at this he's point. He's starting to make a name for himself, right. but he's not got to that point where he's seen as a threat. He's just somebody who's, you know, agitating but not not really getting anywhere. Right. And like they say, when he returned to take some local government positions in India where he felt I've like he got this horrible some... feeling hmm? that this whole story's setting up for him to be crushed. And that's my worry. Okay. I, I acknowledge your worry and I hope that you can deal with your anxiety as we move through because, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look good when he goes back and finally gets a government position in India that he's not able to actually influence anything. Right. And he's getting more and more frustrated with that fact that any time he, he suggests a middle path or a way that things could be adapted to mutual benefit, the British are just going, no, we're going to do well, it he's, this he's way. He's assuming that they're reasonable hmm. and that... Oh, yeah. His values are aligned with theirs. But he, he or does. That his values. He, th- he thinks that his values may be aligned with theirs, where they don't. Where the values are completely different, or they lack the values he, he owns. Even though. Even though he was getting stymied at every every turn, he, he wouldn't start to go over to the idea of rebellion. There were other Indians, other, you know, educated Indians who were saying, look, the only way that this is going to work is if we, you know, rise up and if we have more armed rebellions and if we basically show them that we're not going to put up with it and make it more of a headache for them to try and administer this than it is to just withdraw. But he he didn't want to go down that road. He, he always held on to the idea that people could be reasonable and all he had to do was explain in a way that could be understood the issue and that reasonable people will go, oh yeah, that's... That is an issue. Let's sort that out. And he fell back on the purest language that there is in this universe. The language of mathematics. To try and explain the issues in a way that he thought English politicians and businessmen would understand. Because what does maths translate to beautifully? Um, That English people, especially Victorian people, were obsessed with. um, Ooh. Decency. (laughs) Money. Money. So close with decency, but no finances. Cold, hard cash. So starting in 1870, Dadabai developed his drain theory of British rule in India, which basically uh, went as follows. One, India was governed by a foreign government, which resulted in British interests being valued higher than those of the native population. So when the chips were down, the people administrating the country would always think, what's the best option for Britain, not what's the best option for India? Two, India did not attract immigrants, which brought labour and capital for economic growth. So they were stagnating in that they couldn't attract people to come in because there was no opportunity to rise to the top in Indian society because that position was held by the Brits. Right. And it didn't matter if you were an immigrant or if you were a native-born Indian, you were never going to break into that. And because Britain will just stay there until until it's completely squeezed dry. And, yeah. then... and then say, well, freedom. America... <laughs> Three, India paid for British administrators in India and the troops in the Indian army who wouldn't necessarily be needed 
unless Britain were an occupying force. So India were basically footing the bill for being occupied, which was draining money away from local communities. Four, Indian money was not only being used to administer the empire within India, it was being used to maintain the empire outside of its borders. So they were paying taxes, which were being taken to administer, uh, you know, the other territories that Britain held, which was money that then couldn't be spent on Indian infrastructure. Five, opening the country to free trade allowed for foreigners to take highly paid jobs over those of equally qualified Indians. Read British. So any opportunities that were there, the British would... And six, the principal income earners, the British people, uh, would spend their money outside of India or would just hoard the money and leave. So even even the idea that, well, it doesn't matter who you're paying ultimately because they're going to be paying back into the local community because... You know, you've, you've got a shop somewhere. I find it hard to believe that he he recognises all these things, mm. but fails to recognise that he can't reason with it. He's he's just a, a very pure man who can't can't it's believe. Be his downfall, Joe. Is it? Is it? Or are we going to have that rare thing of a man who sticks to his guns, is not corrupted, and is ultimately proved righteous? Stay tuned after these adverts. Do you not want those children anymore? Late, late term abortions. <laughs> it's a gun. <laughs> That's dark, even for us. Welcome back. Overall, Dada by estimated. Oh no! Don't <clears throat> use that. Mm. Let's go to another advert. Are you feeling down? Has lockdown left you lethargic and unable to motivate yourself? Try Dan's bag of kittens. For just a small, small fee, Dan will send a bag of kittens to your house that you can play with for up to 48 hours before sending back in the handy free post basket provided. Frequently asked questions. Why are three of my kittens dead? Unfortunately, although we ensure the kittens are in prime physical condition during the packing process, we cannot legislate for the poor, poor state of the British Postal Service. Will it cure my impotence? Nothing will cure your impotence, but becoming a crazy old cat lady slash man will make you feel justified in your choices. Why won't Jennifer come back? You were a terrible husband. You just need to give up. Stop e-stalking her. Stop sending things to her door. She returns them all anyway. Should I ignore this lumping my neck? (laughs) No. Any lump or any change in your body that you are not comfortable with should be brought up with your GP. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Overall, Gadabai <laughs> estimated that around 200 to 300 million pounds had been redistributed from India to Britain since the beginning of the British occupation. And the uh, 200 to 300 million pounds, that was in then money, which is just it's astronomical, the amount that he worked out that had been lost from the Indian economy just because all the top jobs were British. All the mineral wealth was being siphoned off to Britain. All the good ideas, all the, you know, everything that could be taken as a resource from that country was being ripped out. However, like I said, in spite of this, Dadabai continued to believe that a positive relationship could be developed with the British that would be fair and mutually beneficial. And Dadabai became a founder member of the Indian National Congress, a political organisation that advocated a gradual move towards home rule. 
So he wanted it to be a staged move towards home rule, probably with home rule being Indians taking over the running of India, shock horror, but by that time having developed a very close trading relationship with Britain to the point where the two countries were so close and, you know, that they'd managed to knit the interests so closely together that they were almost working as a symbiotic relationship. But he still thought the best way to promote his cause was to speak directly to the British, specifically to the British politicians in Parliament. And what's the best way to speak to politicians in Parliament? Nice, Nicely. I don't know, Joe, what you get. Even geographically. If oh, be there. Yes, be there. You need to be in Parliament. So, he decided... This is putting too much pressure on he me. He was going to be elected to Parliament. How hard could that be? He returned to England... If anyone will, dad a try. <clears throat> he returned to England, and in 1886, he stood as a candidate for the seat of Holborn in London. He didn't win. However, he was not put off as he secured quite a large groundswell of support from the Liberal Party just for running. And they thought it was right that a country of 250 million people... Would have a representation. Yeah. <laughs> one MP. That seems fair. Um, so it's like MP for... Well, do you want the scale? I Cumbria. Can, I, I can put it in scale. So the Conservative MP who won the Holborn seat got less than 4,000 votes to secure his seat. And it seems fair that if 4,000 people get one MP, that 250 million people probably deserve an MP as well. Yeah. Somebody who'll speak for them. But Dadabai, he was quite smart. He waited his time <clears throat> and he decided when an opportunity came up that he'd switch his focus to the district of Finsbury in London. It was six years until the next election there. So he spent the entire six years advocating for Indian causes, um, getting involved in the day-to-day of the stuff that was going around in Finsbury. He was going to basically become such a, a ubiquitous figure in that area that by the time the election came along, he wasn't just some... Indian who'd come over to try and make a point. He was somebody there who knew the local issues, was advocating for the local issues, and had demonstrated that he actually cared about the people, which shouldn't be too hard for Dadabai. Well, he, well, he's trying to... He's, he's, he's taking his overall idea and doing it into yeah. everyday life. Yeah. Right, so I'm going to knit myself into this society yeah. in and the become, way that I want India to knit into British society. Yeah. He's, he's taking it down to a, a micro level micro of what level. he wants to do. But during those six years, he also had time because he was still helping out, like I said, Indian causes. Uh, He got a letter of introduction um, sent to him, seeing if he couldn't help a young bloke by the name of Mahatma Gandhi, young lawyer, new to the city, who wanted some help. So being as he was, Dadabai, he was the father of Indian independence. He was the guy. Of course, he took Mahatma Gandhi in, gave him advice, gave him support. And throughout the rest of his life, he would receive letters from Gandhi and he would reply. And they developed, a, yeah, not a close friendship, but they, they developed a mutual respect. An interest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dadabai also hired a young assistant called Mohammed Al Jinnah. Ali Jinnah. Should get that right. Definitely need to get that right. Ali Jinnah. Yeah, wait a minute. Dadabai also hired a young assistant called Mohammed Ali Jinnah who would go on to found a little country by the name of Pakistan. So... Oh, is Pakistan part of India at this point? So that's like Pakistan Kashmir. didn't exist at this point. 
Wow. That was just India. So during those six years while he was waiting to see if he could win an election, he managed to help out Mahatma Gandhi and he managed to help out Mohammed al Jinnah. So the two founding fathers of two nations. It's just a thing he did while he was messing about in Finsbury. But like I say, he threw himself into the civil lives of the people of Finsbury Central. He attended all the meetings. He was canvassing. He supported local causes. He was determined that he was going to prove himself worthy of being elected. He didn't want to just turn up and hope that the Liberal support from the Liberal Party would get him over the line. He wanted the people there to vote for him because they genuinely thought he was going to fight for them. He was inadvertently helped in his cause by the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, who was interviewed and he gave the opinion that no British constituency was ready to elect a black man. Um, though he did uh. accept that Dadabai might not be exactly black, but he was foreign, which was really the same thing when you think about it. <laughs> this derogatory mention from the Prime Minister actually increased Dadabai's profile because everyone wanted to know who was this who was this black but not black man that the Prime Minister was commenting on. Um, and he was he managed to go into the 1892 election with a bit more of a profile than he might have been expecting. And he was actually elected to Parliament with a massive majority of five votes. He won his election by five votes. Are they going to let it stand? Of course they are. There's nothing in that says that you cannot be elected to the British Parliament based on your nationality. You, you, if you are able to stand, you know, if you are not, um, you know, there's no reason that you're not allowed to stand sort of legally. Race isn't a barrier. And if you win, you win. It's first past the post. If you get the most votes from those people, there's nothing they can do. So with his massive majority of five, he was the, a lot of people will tell you he was the first um, Asian member of parliament. He was actually the second there was an Anglo-Asian person who was voted in before him, but it turned out that person um, had bribed his way into the seat. So he was quickly taken away. But technically, he had sat in Parliament, and we're going to do his story because he is amazing in his own way. Right. What's his name? No, no, no. I'm giving nothing Please away it. just in case you read it, but we will do the first Asian... You think I'm going to go home and Parliament. read? Um, so the other thing, groundbreaking... Don't know me at all. He took his oath on a copy of the Corde Avesta, one of the holy books of the Zoroastrian religion, of which his father and grandfather had been priests. What's a grandfather? A grandfather. His father and grandfather had been priests. In his maiden speech in 1893, not 1993, he waited a hundred years to speak, and his first words were, I'm so old! (laughs) No, in his maiden speech in 1893, he eloquently explained the financial... Why won't you let me, Dada, die? <laughs> oh, God. I think we just need a pause for that joke. Uh, well done. In his maiden speech in 1893, he eloquently explained the financial inequalities of British rule in India by describing how a routine trading transaction was heavily skewed against Indians due to the currency imbalance reiterating as he did that he believed that the British Parliament would see the injustice and would seek to remedy the situation on behalf of the quarter of a billion colonial citizens. So even when he was stood up in Parliament and he had the opportunity to call them all out for being, you know, 
completely power-hungry, colonial, continent-raping, absolute arseholes, he still stuck to his guns of, if I tell them what the problem is, we can reach an agreement, we can do this in a way that benefits everyone. He thinks that they don't know what's happening. He's like, I'm going to hold a mirror. Mm. I but, feel like they all know what is going on. Yeah, but and he's yet to realise. They can't deny it now because <clears throat> he stood up in Parliament in front of them and explained it in the simple kiddie terms. He has broken it down to the level where even the man on the, you know, the man on the street, the working man of England, can look at that and just patently go, "Well, we're not talking about gross national debt. We're not talking about these things. We're talking about." one person trying to sell someone else one thing and how the way that it's set up is absolutely screwing one of the people in that transaction. No, Everyone can see no, it. No, I understand that. But I feel like the the people he's telling us are going to go, yeah, we know. Mm. But they don't want happen? to be seen as bastards. They're, they're holding on to the lie of, no, we're doing this for everyone's own good and all he's doing is turning up and going, yes, but this in the simplest of terms is why it's not for their own good. I understand that. <clears throat> Now what are you going to do about it? And that can be a lot more powerful than becoming the thing that they want him to be, which is someone who just shouts and screams and they can go, look at look at what happens when you elect an Indian. They just, they just shout at you. In, incomprehensible gibberish. Just We can ignore him because he's obviously a loon, but he's just being determinedly reasonable. Completely composed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, during his time in office, Dadabai continued to advocate tirelessly for Indian causes. But there was some time between that, because you can't just advocate for one thing all the time. So he also advocated for Irish Home Rule and the interests of the Socialist Second International Organisation. Finding his own theories of wealth inequality and their solution to be quite close to the thoughts of another foreigner who'd made his name and his home in London in Karl Marx, who is, of course, buried in London. Um, is he actually buried in London? Yeah, Karl Marx is. He lived in London quite a lot of his later life. Um, unfortunately for Dadabai, his five-vote majority was swept away in the next election in 1893, only three years after he'd started. He stood again in 1906 for the seat of Lambeth North at the age of 80, uh, but he was again defeated. He retired to India. Well, he would have retired to India, but he was elected president of the Indian National Congress as a recognition of his tireless work to improve the situation for his fellow countrymen. Is he like 86 at this point? Uh, let's have a look. No, he would have he would have been in his 80s, definitely. Okay. Um, but in spite of a career spanning half a century, Dadabai was still convinced that dialogue and mutual understanding with Britain was in the best interests of both countries. He never, he never got beaten down to the point where he became cynical. That's great. He always believed in the best in the other side. That eventually, if he kept presenting them with this undeniable truth, they would. It feels like that's what we've lost hmm. recently. Like it feels like we've gone back to a point where there's no, where it's just a shouting match. Yeah. Instead of people being confident in their Nonsense. own arguments, it's I. It's almost an insecurity in in people's own point of view that they feel like I can't just win based off presenting what I think and people identifying that they agree with that and, and buying into it. It's I've got to attack the other side. And so much energy is spent tearing down the other side that you don't actually have anything of substance. The you're, you're framing yourself against I'm not them and they're shit. It's like, well, okay, but what are you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dada by himself, 
luckily he he's not still alive. He's not seeing this shit show that is politics these days. He died in Bombay in 1917 at the age of 91. He is today remembered as the grand old man of India. Indian independence was achieved 30 years later after the end of World War II. And that was when the birth of Pakistan took place. Um, the financial impact of the Second World War had finally done what Dadabai's own financial explanations had not. There are calls for a statue of Dadabai to be commissioned at Parliament to commemorate his groundbreaking legacy. And I, for one, am all for it. And if we were to knock down the abomination that is a statue commemorating Oliver Cromwell, we'd have the perfect spot for it, right outside. I would also be happy to remove either Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill from the members' lobby in order to slot him in. But that's just me. And that is the story of Dadabai Naroji, who was, if not the first um, Asian MP... He was definitely the the first Asian MP who did well, bribe his way influential. in. And yes, one of the most influential people of the Indian independence movement who is for some reason not remembered in this country at all. It's funny how like Gandhi takes, mm. you know, to a complete moron like me. Mm. I, that's, Gandhi's the only person I could name from Indian From the people that was, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's the whitewashing of it as well. It's, you know, what we don't want to show in terms of in history is that actually the Indian independence movement started the moment we went over there mm -hmm. and it was always a fractious relationship and there were always people who could see the inequality in it and could see the fact that it was basically exploitation on a national scale. Whereas the story of Gandhi, of someone coming over, this charismatic guy, and within a short space of time, we all went, oh, yes, obviously this person proves that the great project has worked and we have civilised these people now and we can give them it back. It's, it's, it's a nicer thing for the British psyche to swallow that we had a project to civilise people and as soon as they proved to us that they were civilised, we handed them the country back, whereas really it was we gouged them and gouged them and gouged them until eventually, after the Second World War, because we were so far in debt, the cost of administering you know the rule in india was too much for us to bear at that time so we just we, God, cut, makes, we cut and run that's that clears so much up for me because i always wondered why why did we give these powers back and it's because we had a we couldn't afford to the world because it's, it's whole, the same with like hong kong and stuff like that well most of the empire it was we it, we couldn't afford to administer it anymore um and we just had to get out of there and try and consolidate our losses because the thing about the way we we gave I knew the it independence wasn't for like because we it gets sold as though it, we realised it was for the betterment of the of the people well, of that country. I'm I'm really simplifying. But really, this. it was because we couldn't afford it. Basically, we went we're skint, we can't afford this. But what are we going to do with India? And someone went right. Let's draw a line there. All the people who are Muslims can live in this bit. All the Hindus can live in this bit, and all of the Sikhs can live in this bit. And they drew some borders and went, right, you've got a week. I don't think it was a week, but it was something stupidly short like that. Totally ignoring the fact that these communities had grown up with, you know, they they weren't delineated completely along religious lines. Yeah. The communities were built up of, you know, people who were linked in so many different ways. But it was just like, right, okay, you're a Muslim. Right, you need to move. You need to move to that side of this line right now. And you need to move to that side. It was an absolute shit show, and the a lot of the issues between India and Pakistan to this day 
you can trace back to the fact that rather than it's quite helpful yeah. for Britain that Indian India and Pakistan are at war with each other. I don't think we cared at the time what trouble we were causing. It was just what is the quickest and most efficient way that we can say, right, we've given you independence, sort it out by. I mean, like the amount of shit we've caused, and then they just it's internal fighting still, mm. basically, and we just walk away like, oh, look what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Civilized them. Can't you, can't you see? Can't you see how civilized everything is? Yeah, I mean, but that's that's the way that empires always end. They expand, 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 and then eventually they collapse under the weight of their own administration. It it, it costs so much. That's how it used to, to happen, it. Joe. Now now they're too big to fail. <laughs> Skin condoms. Skinning. Oh shit, I'm really loud, aren't I?